You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Our scripture today comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, beginning with the 21st verse. Friends, let us listen now for a word from God. The prophet speaks, saying, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name. Because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The Lord gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and fall and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, send your spirit that it would draw near to us in this moment. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've long been fascinated by Carl Sagan's famous pale blue dot photo. Sagan was an astrophysicist for many years with NASA. He worked on a number of different projects, including the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft. And for about a decade in the 1980s, Sagan lobbied the higher-ups at NASA to execute a plan he had formulated where a signal would be sent to the Voyager 1 spacecraft telling it to turn its camera around and take a picture looking back at Earth as it followed its trajectory going out to the edges of our solar system. For 10 years, the higher-ups, they resisted 
because they were concerned that if a photo like that was taken, the exposure it would mean to the sun would damage some of the instruments on Voyager. But finally, in February 1990, Sagan finally prevailed and the chief of NASA signed off on the plan. A signal was sent, it was received, those cameras turned around and took a picture looking back towards Earth. Y'all ever seen this photo? You can pull out your phones if you want to. I thought about putting it up here, but I was like, I don't think you could get a full appreciation from where you're sitting if it's up here. So the photo that Voyager beamed back to Earth was 640,000 pixels. It was a photo taken from 4 billion miles away. 640,000 pixels. It's actually a bunch of photos that they stitched together. On one side of it is just this bright light occupying like a whole quadrant. You guess what that is? The sun, our star. And then clear across the photo is this single sunbeam. And suspended in that sunbeam is a single dot. Someone went back and actually calculated. It's like a tenth of one pixel, this dot. 640,000 pixel picture, a tenth of one pixel. You know what the dot is? Earth. This moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. I remember the first time I saw this picture, like my jaw just kind of hung open in sheer awe. And you know, that happened to me again this week as I was reading these verses from Isaiah because it occurred to me that Isaiah actually has that exact image in his hand as he preaches this sermon to the Israelite people. Did y'all catch at the very beginning of these verses, Isaiah describes God as sitting above the circle of the earth and he describes the inhabitants of earth as a grasshopper. You ever tried to find a grasshopper from space? Talk about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a pixel. Right, Sagan doesn't have, or rather uh, Isaiah doesn't have the benefit of what Sagan had. He doesn't have satellites or cameras or even science for that matter. All he has is faith. And the most remarkable thing to me about these verses is that it is with that faith that Isaiah looks out upon the world. And he sees us for what we are, these specks of dust on this small stage in this vast cosmic arena. Those are Sagan's words, great words. And yet his faith allows him to make a radical claim that though we might be a pale blue dot on a pale blue dot, the creator, God, not only sees us, and knows us and loves us, but will also one day restore us. It's a remarkable claim, especially when you consider the audience that Isaiah is preaching this sermon to. So scholars look at the book of Isaiah. It's 66 chapters long. It's pretty long. It's hard to get through, but 
they break it into three different sections. And they usually date those sections slightly differently. They believe that Isaiah is probably knit together as a book and it was written at different periods in Israel's history. And Isaiah 40, where we read from today, is the very beginning of what is sometimes referred to as Second Isaiah. And Second Isaiah is written at a moment in time when the Israelite people who have been out in exile... The Israelites were not a strong nation. They had been sacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and spent generations at this point out in exile. Some of them had relatively decent experiences out there. They were able to enjoy some comforts of life. They got jobs. They raised families. Others of the exiles had less than optimal experiences. They were forced to endure labor camps. They were uh, oppressed. They were not afforded the freedoms of their neighbors around them. And now all of these exiles are returning to Israel after all this time at the beginning of 2nd Isaiah. And what they find in their homeland is destruction. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were not kind as they rolled through town. Jerusalem, the very heart of their faith and their national identity, it lays in ruins. The temple where God was literally supposed to reside has been destroyed. The walls that protected Jerusalem are down. No one actually wants to live in Jerusalem. It's actually a part in Nehemiah where they talk about the Israelites casting lots to decide who actually had to draw the short straw and go back and live in Jerusalem. Everyone else wanted to set up camp somewhere in the countryside. It was a hard time. And it's gradually dawning on them as Isaiah begins to preach at this point in their history that yes, exile was hard, but the whole return part, well, that might actually turn out to be harder. Isaiah asked those questions, meant to be rhetorical questions at the beginning. He says, have you not seen? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not understood? Rather, We can almost hear the Israelite people replying to him, oh yeah, Isaiah, we've heard. We've seen, we've known, we've understood, but listen, we're having an awfully hard time believing. Because when we look around at our world, it screams to us that God, God ain't around. So the question becomes, where does Isaiah muster this faith? Where does Isaiah get that picture in his heart and in his mind? For me, what it is, is when he imagines God up there above the circle of the earth, when he holds in his hand that photo that Sagan took all those years later, what Isaiah is struck by is not the smallness of earth, but rather the bigness of God. It is the very fact that God comprises all 639,000 dot, 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 rest pixels of that picture. It is the very fact that God's comprehension is far vaster than anything we can ever comprehend. It is the very fact that God does name and knows the name of every one of the stars in the sky. It is that very fact that gives Isaiah his faith. The faith that if God does know all the stars, then God also knows every hair on our head. It is God's bigness that gives Isaiah the faith to claim and proclaim to the Israelite people that there is no hurt that God cannot heal. 
that there is no life that goes unseen, that there is no pixel that is unaccounted for. It may take time, Isaiah says. It may involve waiting. But one day, because of God's bigness, because of this faith that he clings to, Isaiah proclaims that one day, all things will be restored. Y'all ever signed up for something and then a few weeks into it, you wonder, what in the world did I get myself into? I heard a little bit of that in Ben's remarks. Maybe some of our Eagle Scouts here can relate to that, right? Eagle Scouts sounded like a great idea, and then, ooh, halfway through, you're not quite so sure. I had one of those experiences on Friday. I was gathering with a a group of pastors that have agreed to participate in a production that is going to be in our community a little bit later this month at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in Highland neighborhood, actually. Uh, It's a production that's called God's Trombones. I'm embarrassed now, honestly, to admit I had never heard of God's Trombones before I was contacted to be a part of this production. It is a piece by uh, James Weldon Johnson who wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing. James Weldon Johnson was a civil rights activist, black leader and writer in the early 20th century. And he wrote this book called God's Trombones that is a series of seven African-American spiritual sermons that are read over the course of this performance and intermingled with music and, yes, some trombones. The reason I've started to wonder what I got myself into is because I am frankly humbled to even be a part of this. Myself and one other white pastor are the only two who will be in this Uh, predominantly African-American production. I hope that some of you will come because it is going to be a production. It's going to move you. Anyway, all the pastors were having uh, breakfast together on Friday, preparing for this later this month. And the producer for the production was there. And someone asked him, you know, tell us a little bit about the history of God's Trombones. And he started telling us about some of the earliest performances, which would have been in the 1920s and 30s. And what was interesting to me is he said, you know, imagine the audiences who were coming to these performances back in those days. He said most of them would come into that sanctuary or that theater, wherever it was being uh, put on, and he said their hearts would be perplexed. That was his word. These audiences, primarily of African Americans in the 1920s and 30s, they come in with hearts that were perplexed by the unjust world that they lived in, by these examples of hatred, both direct and indirect, that would be directed towards them in their daily existence. But he said, you know what struck people early on in these performances is that by the end of the performance, those hearts that came in as perplexed ended with ecstasy. That was his word. He said, you know, as these sermons unfolded, as this story of a God whose love was bigger than anything they had imagined before, 
as this gospel of a God who came in a particular person and who loved each person to the point even of death on a cross. As this story unfolded, he said you could almost sense in these audiences early on and today the weariness of their lives beginning to ease. You could sense the strength beginning to come back. It was as if you could sense that there in those pews or there in those seats, people began to mount up, you might say, with wings like an eagle. As I listened, it occurred to me that that's exactly what Isaiah wants for each of us in these verses. Right? Isaiah wants each of us to recognize that though we may be grasshoppers on that stage in a vast cosmic arena, we are known and seen and loved. And because of that, one day we too shall renew our strength. One day each of us too shall mount up with wings like eagles. One day each of us shall run and not be weary. One day this world will walk and God willing not faint. I imagine Isaiah there holding that image in his hands. Seeing that pale blue dot. And rather than feeling weariness, being filled with hope and with joy. For if God's love can be as tiny as that pinprick of light, imagine how wide God's love must be for all of creation. Friends, may we walk by that light. May we carry that picture. May we not grow weary in our own lives. May we, like those audiences long ago hearing that production for the first time, feel a little bit of extra air under our wings as we fly out from this place today to share the wideness of that mercy with others. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you are the one who sees us. You are the one who can look through even the deepest stretches of our universe and call us by name. God, may that truth strengthen us this day and always. And may it light the way as we seek to go out into this world and share that love with others. We pray this all in the name of your Son, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.